Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's return to the 16th chapter of the Gospel of Luke this morning. Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31 is our text. Title of the message is Crossing by the Cross. If you polled pastors as to which subjects are the most difficult to preach, I suspect the top three in some order would be money, divorce, and health. And that's why some uh, unfortunately do the great theological broad jump here in Luke 16, that they get to chapter 15 and they jump over 16 and land in 17. Because chapter 16 of Luke finds Jesus saying some difficult things about money, some even more difficult things about divorce and marriage, and concludes the chapter with a parable about health. Well, like the best medicine, sometimes the things we most need are the most difficult to take. So let's take some life-giving medicine this morning, shall we? Let's jump into the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 19. Now there was a rich man and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at the gate covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes being in torment and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger and water the cool off my tongue. For I'm in agony in this flame. And Abraham said, child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise, Lazarus, bad things, but now he's being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. But he said, no father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Now the first thing we see in this parable is a study in contrast. Now there was a rich man, he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, he joyously lived in splendor every day. And then there was a poor man named Lazarus. So the rich man whose name here is, is not given, although traditionally the name is Dives, which is just a word for rich man. He was rich. He was well-dressed. He was happy. The scripture says he was joyous every day. And he was on the inside enjoying luxury behind a locked gate. On the other side of that gate was the other man, Lazarus, who's described here as poor and unhealthy. He was laid at the gate. He was on the outside looking in. 
He was miserable, he was hungry, and in poor health. In fact, Scripture says his body was covered in sores, and to add insult to injury, dogs would come and lick at those sores. Now, dogs in that day did not enjoy the status they have in our society. Dogs were looked down upon, and to call someone a dog was the lowest insult. And these, by the way, were wild dogs. These weren't domesticated animals, likely. And so you could not have had two more different characters. And so that's the point of the story. Jesus is illustrating two people who could not be in different circumstances in this life and the life to come. Now, the next thing we see is a reminder of commonality. Even though these two men, from an earthly perspective, being observed by a casual observer, we'd say these people don't belong in any categories that are the same. They find a commonality in death. Here's a reminder of their commonality. Verse 22. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. Now these two men lived very different lives. One enjoyed economic prosperity and good health and likely the respect and social status that comes with those things. And that was especially true in the culture in which Jesus addresses this story. The Pharisees believed and taught that physical health and financial abundance gave evidence of spiritual and moral uprightness. And conversely, poor physical health and poverty were to be seen as signs of sinfulness and the disfavor of God. But this attitude was not confined to the religious elite. It seems to have permeated every, every strata of the Jewish population by the time of Christ. For example, listen to John 9, speaking of Jesus out for a stroll with his disciples one day. As he passed by, he saw a blind man from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? And Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. These disciples, who were not religiously elite, they were fishermen, tax collectors, <clears throat> had been infected with this belief that if someone were sick or handicapped in some way, it was evidence of God's disfavor or some sin in their life. The point is that the rich man not only enjoyed the benefits of wealth and good health, but also was viewed in society as morally superior to the man called Lazarus. In other words, their contemporaries looked down upon Lazarus and looked up to the rich man simply because he was rich. But as he often did, the Lord Jesus changed all that. Something happens to these men apparently around the same time. That is, they both die. And friends, things have not changed. As Brother John reminded us in our revival meeting, death is still batting a thousand. Hebrews 9:27, it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment. Death has been called the great equalizer. That is, even the wealthy and most powerful cannot ultimately escape it. Both these men die, the rich and the poor, the healthy and the sick. But in death, the contrast between these two men continues on. For example, the poor man, it says, was carried away to heaven by the angels. That is his soul, I take it. Because the bodies of the poor who could not afford a proper burial were usually just dumped outside the city gates along with the rest of the trash. The rich man, on the other hand, was buried. I take it he had a fancy funeral. All his friends and relatives came. He probably had picked out an expensive tomb and a fancy service. But that's where things change. For these two men. Verse 23 says, In Hades, 
The rich man lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. Now, theologians and, and those who write commentaries have written a lot about these terms, Hades and Abraham's bosom. But, but really, what you were taught as a child is, is the truth, and which is the core truth of this parable. That is, the rich man went to hell and the poor man went to heaven. Now, in this life, we humans divide ourselves up into subgroups upon subgroups. The choices are endless these days. I recently became, I came across a patient intake form for a hospital. I have it in my hand here. This top half of my page is it. It's just about 10 questions, just the basics anyone would be asked if they were entering a hospital stay. For example, the first line says preferred pronoun. How do you want to be referred to? There are six choices. He, she, they, Z, a pronoun not listed and no pronoun preference. It goes on with sexual orientation. There are seven choices. Gender identity, there are seven choices. Sex assigned at birth, you would think there would be two, but there are four. Now, I'm no mathematician, but on that simple intake form, the computation, the possibilities of different ways this form could be filled out came out to 290,424,960. That's how we rank and categorize one another on a simple intake form. Friends, Jesus has an incredible way of cutting through all of our attempts at stratification and diversification and declares that ultimately there are only two groups of people in the universe. Those that spend eternity in heaven and those who spend eternity in hell. And that is the point of this story. There is such a countercultural statement that I just made that your first instinct might be to be repulsed at it, to, to reject it out of hand. This seems to be the case in all the research that I've read. I mentioned in last week's message that the fastest growing self-identifying religious group in the nation is the nuns. That is to say that those that don't have any religious affiliation or beliefs. But that is not to say that most or even the majority of people in our country are atheists. Far from it. In most surveys, well over 70% of Americans claim to believe in the existence of heaven and hell. But what is even more telling is that of those 70% of Americans who say they believe in heaven and hell, less than 1% believe they're going to hell. That seems to indicate that people want a hell where the people they perceive to be the worst of the worst will spend eternity. But most people they feel will go to heaven. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches. Matthew 7, 13, Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. Now that is not to say that heaven will be sparsely populated. The book of Revelation says there's a number which no man could number. What it's saying is that in every epoch of history, those who reject Christ far outnumber those that receive him. The Pharisees thought that they could discern a person's spiritual destiny by observing certain outward indicators. For example, if a person was Jewish, that is if they were a child of Abraham, they would say it's a good chance they're going to go to heaven. Remember what John the Baptist said, 
say not that we are children of Abraham because God is able to raise up children of Abraham from these rocks. Well, beyond being children of Abraham, those that were especially devoted to the law, they thought would, would go to heaven, which of course was them. They certainly were convinced. Remember that Pharisee who held up his glass at the luncheon where Jesus blasted them and says, won't it be good when we're all enjoying this banquet in heaven? But on top of those signs, one's Jewishness and one's devotion to the law, temporal blessings were viewed as evidence that one was on his way to heaven. And many who attempt to interpret this parable do so by making it an attack on earthly wealth. And by doing so, they elevate poverty to a desirable thing. That's not the point of this story. The point is that just because someone is wealthy doesn't mean they're right with God. That is, some would say that the rich man went to hell for being rich. And the poor man went to, hell for, or went to heaven because he was poor. That, that's terrible hermeneutics. The Bible does not teach salvation by poverty. Neither does it teach reprobation by wealth. Perhaps that is why Jesus describes heaven here as the bosom of Abraham. That is, he was in the presence of Father Abraham. It's where the poor Jewish man would have fellowship with the greatest Jewish patriarch. But here's a little secret about Abraham, if you haven't studied his life lately. He was fabulously wealthy. And so if being wealthy sends one to hell, Abraham certainly would have qualified. He was so wealthy that he had to divide up his family fortune with his nephew, lest they just overwhelm the land with their wealth. And on top of that, he apparently enjoyed good health because the Bible says he lived to be 175 years old. So, so the rich man didn't go to hell for being rich and healthy in this life. The rich man went to hell for rejecting the Savior. And he had an eternity to consider that truth. Let's look at verse 24. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue for I'm in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things and now he is being comforted here and you're in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there's a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. There's something about the rich man's words that remind me that even in hell, he was an unredeemed sinner. He still thought the same way he did when he was in this life. For example, he seems to still think that Lazarus was beneath him. He thought he could command Lazarus to do his errands for him. Lazarus, dip your finger in water and cool my tongue. Lazarus, go warn my brothers not to come here. There's no indication anywhere in the scripture that this man ever offered any of these same mercies and blessings to Lazarus in life. And the words of Abraham to the rich man are very sobering. Listen again, verse 26. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed. Now we're not given much detail in the scripture about what hell is like. And, and I would say this, I don't think we can build a theology of hell completely from this story. This is after all a parable. It's a story to illustrate a point that Jesus was making. But I do think there are some principles about eternity and hell 
that we can find here, putting them together with other passages of Scripture. The first principle is this, hell is a real place. It is never presented as anything but real. Now there are times in the Scripture where the Scriptures use um, figures of speech, metaphors, similes. This is not one of those. When those things are viewed as an illustration or a metaphor, the Scripture will often say something is like this. Hell is just presented as a reality without any apology. Not only is hell a real place, it is eternal. As Abraham says to this man, you can't come here and we can't go there. It is inescapable. There are no calendars in hell and there are no exit signs in hell. Because hell is designed to punish and not to rehabilitate. Hell is a place to punish the wicked. And that's why we deny here, don't we, the Roman Catholic doctrine of purgatory. That somehow there's a middle place that one can go and finish paying off his sin debt and then he can be worthy of heaven. The Bible never speaks of that. The Bible says hell is eternal, eternal and a place of punishment. But here's something else to, to note from this story that hell is a place of conscious suffering. There are those that would teach a, a concept called annihilationism. And the idea is that when a person who is not a Christian dies, they simply dissolve into the universe out of conscious existence. Not what the Bible teaches. The Bible talks about this man having recollection of his life and having regret. And one of the things that's going to make hell, hell is the life of regret, knowing that you chose the wrong path. It's a place of conscious suffering. And, and, and we know this, if we know nothing else about hell, and we do, but if we knew nothing else about hell, we know enough to let us know that no one should want to go there. I, I've heard people before say some very foolish things. I had a young man tell me one time that he wanted to go to hell because that's where all of his friends would be. I had a woman tell me one time that she didn't want to go to heaven unless her dog could go with her. They, these are foolish and sobering thoughts. Hell is a real place. It's, etern it's eternal. There are no exit signs. It's designed to punish. It's a place of conscious suffering and no one should want to go there. This man knew that. He knew that if he couldn't escape, at least he would warn his brothers not to come there. And he said in verse 27, I beg you, Father, that you send him, that's Lazarus, to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them so that they will not come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Remember I said that this man is still unredeemed even in hell? Not only did he think that he could boss Lazarus around, even in hell, his pride was so great that he thought he knew more about theology than Abraham. Abraham said, they have the Bible. They have the Old Testament prophets and the first five books of the law. Let them read that and that will tell them how to avoid this place. But he said, no, we need a gimmick. Let's send someone back from the dead and that will impress them and then they'll believe. Well, we know that's not true. That leads us to our final point, the truth that condemns. Verse 31, but 
That is in response to what the rich man said. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. This man obviously was a Jewish man. He had the law. He had what we call the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible written by Moses. He had the Old Testament, the prophets. He had all of the prophecies about the coming Messiah and the Savior. They pointed to a Savior. It was not for lack of evidence that the Pharisee had rejected his Savior. It was willful, stubborn unbelief. This man, like the Pharisees, had a faithless orthodoxy. That is, he checked off all the boxes, just like the Pharisees did. He had a love of money, and outwardly it seemed like God was blessing him, and yet his heart was cold. One of his brothers, a fellow Jewish person, lived his life right outside the gate of his home, and he never even gave him some crumbs off of his table although he ate extravagantly every day. You know what that word crumbs means actually? Wealthy Jewish people in that day would, would eat a great feast and they usually would have some meat and only the wealthy then could enjoy meat every day. And as you know, meat when it's cooked has grease and they would take bread that was old and stale and they would crumble it up and they would use that bread to wash the grease off of their hands and he would not give him that used, stale, crumbled up bread to sustain his life. This is the life that this man had lived. All the time claiming to love God. All the time claiming to love the law and, and keeping his commandments. In fact, this man and the Pharisees, who Jesus was addressing this to, I believe, were so hardened in their sin that they would not believe even if someone rises from the dead. Now, this is what we call in literature foreshadowing, isn't it? There was one that would rise up from the dead, the Lord Jesus, and he knew that was coming. And even when he rose from the dead, many of them willfully, stubbornly still would not believe. Jesus knew their heart. Now, friends, there, there's a lot that we need to learn, be reminded of here today. It would be easy to wag our finger at the Pharisees and say, you guys just didn't get it, did you? And they didn't. But the scripture says many of the things are written in the Bible for our benefit, that we don't make the same mistake. And I think here, here's a great example of that. But, but I think there's a couple of phrases that we need to really seize upon here to understand the main point. Abraham said to this man that there is a great gulf fixed between heaven and hell. Now, to a Jewish person in the ancient world, the most frightening thing in the world is the ocean. They were people of the hills. The Philistines, the Phoenicians lived down by the sea. And uh, Jewish people were not seafaring people. And, and, and so a gulf was a big body of water that separated in this story, heaven from hell. And it was uncrossable. But friends, I would submit to you that in this life, there is a great gulf between believers and unbelievers. But here's the difference. In this life, the gulf between faith and unbelief can be crossed through Jesus Christ. 
And that's why the title of the message is Crossing by the Cross. The Bible says there's only one way to heaven. Jesus says in John chapter 14 that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come to the Father except through him. And so when you think about the gospel, one of the ways I like to think about it is, is uh, on one side you have the lost, unbelievers, and on the other side you have heaven, and there's this gulf between, whether you want to call that an ocean or a great cavern, a pit, whatever you want to call it, it there, there's a, a distance between that is not crossable. Now, the tendency that most of us have is to think in terms of the worst person. Remember I said that over 70% of Americans believe in hell, but only 1% think they're going there? And here's what most of them think if you really press them on it. Hell is where people like Hitler goes. Charles Manson, you fill in the blank. The worst of the worst, we want a place to put those people. We don't want to spend eternity with them. And so we think that if there is a distance between us and heaven, we can probably hop over it. The truth is Romans 3.23 says that all of us are sinners and fall short of the glory of God. If we try to hop over, we're going to fall into it. And I often illustrate it, and it's so long ago, I've got to find a new illustration. But, but for years, the greatest athlete in America uh, was a triple jumper. And uh, he won several gold medals in the Olympics. And uh, I've often thought as I've stood on the beach in Miami, and there's a sign there, I think it says 82 miles to Havana, Cuba. And I thought, you know, if this guy who's won six gold medals got a running start and he jumped three times from this beach, that he would land in the water. And if I got a running start, I would land in the water, but not nearly as far into it as he did. But the point is, we're both going to get wet, right? And, and I, I tend to think of eternity that way. There are those that say, well, I'm not a bad person. I haven't murdered anyone. I try to be a good citizen. And so surely I'm not going to go spend eternity with the same place that the worst person I know is. Well, scripture says there's really only two gates, two paths. Remember, we have 290 million ways to take someone into the hospital. Jesus says only two ways to go to eternity. You're either going to spend eternity in heaven where he is or you are going to spend eternity in hell, which was created for Satan and his demons. But here's the glorious good news. The word gospel means good news. The good news is that Jesus died for sinners. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul says in that same book of Romans where he said in Romans 3, we're all condemned. In Romans 6, he says the wages of sin is death. In Romans 10, 9 and 10, he says, if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You can cross in this life that gulf that is fixed between you and heaven, but only through the cross. The cross is the only way to heaven. That is in belief in what Christ did in your place, that he left the glories of heaven he lived a perfect sinless life, tempted in every way that you are. And he went to the cross as your substitute. And that when he died, God the Father was pleased with his sacrifice. And he gave evidence of his pleasure with that sacrifice that on the third day, Jesus arose from the dead. 
And he was witnessed by hundreds of people. And on the 40th day, he ascended into heaven with the promise that one day he was coming again in like manner. And so friends, what about you? The Bible says it's a small gate and a narrow path that leads to heaven and few there be that find it. But the way to hell is wide and I take it six lanes across and no speed limit and people are rushing headlong to it. All the time thinking they're on the road to heaven. This man, this rich man, I'm convinced, woke up in hell, was surprised when he did. And most people who are rushing headlong into hell are not like that foolish young man who said he wanted to go there because that's where his friends would be. He's the anomaly. Almost everyone else is in that category that believes in hell but thinks, surely I won't go there. The scripture says the only ones who will go to heaven are those who have bowed their knee to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be safe. What about you? What are you depending on for your eternity? Is it the fact that you're a moral person? All of that is relative. You, you perceive yourself to be more righteous than your neighbor. Maybe you're saying, well, look how the Lord has blessed me. I've got good health. My children are all healthy. I've got more money than I can ever spend. Surely I must be pleasing the Lord. Well, if this parable tells us nothing else, that is physical and material prosperity are no indication of eternal destiny. There will be a lot of people who are poor in this life who are going to be rich in heaven. In fact, Jesus says it's much more important to be rich in heaven than rich in this life. He says, lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth where thieves break in and steal and moths destroy and rust corrupts, but instead lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where that heavenly treasure is guarded by the Lord himself. What about you? What are you depending on? The blood of the Lord Jesus applied to you through saving faith or anything else? All the categories that we can put together to divide one another come down to two simple truths. You're going to spend eternity in heaven or are you going to spend eternity in hell? My prayer is that you'll spend eternity in heaven through faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. Father, it's a hard word. This whole chapter has been hard. But it's like the strongest medicine. It's what we need to heal us. It's not a loving thing to ignore the doctrine of hell. And so, Father, I, I'm grateful that you have told us enough about it to let everyone know we don't want to go there. And, Father, I know I am so grateful that I'm not going there, but it's not because of my goodness. I have none. It's because of the perfect righteousness of Jesus that has been imputed to my account by simple childlike faith. Father, I thank you for so many in this room who have the same testimony. Father, my heart breaks and I am fearful for so many who think because of their external circumstances that they have nothing to fear. That maybe they're the exception, that they don't have to bow the knee. They don't have to come through the small gate and the narrow path. And Father, there's uh, many people like this rich man 
who one day, if they don't repent, are going to be surprised at where they spend eternity. Father, I pray if there's uh, even one in this room who does not know you and the free pardon of sin, that your Holy Spirit would convict them at this moment of sin and your judgment that is to come and your perfect righteousness of which they fall short. Lord, I pray they'd run to you if they would receive this free gift that is offered through faith in Christ. And Father, we will rejoice with all those who call upon the name of the Lord today. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.